Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. GoFundMe fundraisers have pulled in $30 billion since 2010. One study found that in just five years, nearly 450,000 people tried to fund a medical procedure through the platform. At least here in the U.S., many of the fundraisers are for things that I personally wish people didn't have to pass the hat for. Surgeries, disaster relief, personal tragedies. Today we'll learn from scholars who've been researching platforms like GoFundMe exactly how well they're working to help different kinds of people. We'll also get a little ethical advice on how to handle the asks that you're making or receiving through your social media feeds. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The GoFundMe is now a ubiquitous part of my life. Friends and friends of friends turn to the site to raise money for all kinds of things. Top surgery, funerals, treatments for pets, recovery from a wildfire. And in each and every case, I have to consider a complex calculus of social care and obligation, of understanding and proximity, of trust and economics. I find it difficult each time to look at all those factors and then say, based on all this, sure, $20 to help your cousin's friend who had his tools stolen and 50 bucks for a friend's oral surgery and 10 for this and 100 for that. So today, we gather some evidence and some advice. How should we be thinking through the ethics of this kind of mini philanthropy or mutual aid or crowdfunding, whatever we call it? What do we know about who benefits the most? from these new platforms. Joining us, we have three people who've thought about and researched this topic. We've got Tony Cookson, a professor of finance at Leeds School of Business at UC Boulder, University of Colorado, that is Boulder, who co-authored a recent study about GoFundMe campaigns following a wildfire. Thanks for joining us, Tony. Uh, Thank you. We also have Jeremy Snyder, a professor of health sciences at Simon Fraser University, author of the book Appealing to the Crowd, the Ethical, Political, and Practical Dimensions of Donation-Based Crowdfunding. Thanks for joining us, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. We're also joined by Una O'Seely, Associate Dean at Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University. Also done some serious research on these crowdfunding platforms. Thank you for joining us, Una. Thank you for having me. Um, so I, th- I think I'd like to turn to you first, uh, Jeremy Snyder. I mean, you've written a whole book about the ethical dimensions of this practice. So let's start with that moment when one of these fundraisers pops up 
you know, on your Instagram or your Facebook or someone sends you an email about it. I mean, how should we think about each of those? Yeah, I think that it's important to keep in mind that, you know, this isn't necessarily a new phenomenon. Um, you know, when I was a kid, you'd see the tin can at the gas station asking for for help with somebody locally. And effectively, that's a kind of crowdfunding. Um, and so there's a huge amount of good that comes out of crowdfunding. Um, it takes it online, it helps you get updates, it, it makes transferring that money really quickly, it makes sure that more eyeballs are going to see that. And so I think that a lot of times when you see that request comes across your desk, that's what you should be focused on. And if it's somebody who I think you already know, somebody who you might have helped anyway, uh, somebody that um, you trust and, and have a good sense of what's going to happen with that money, um, you know, it's it's one of the ways in which online uh, activities make our lives easier in, in tons of ways, the, the way that we can reach out to each other right now. But I think that what I've seen, I think a lot of the other folks uh, who, are, who are part of the show have seen as well, is that part of that online nature is that it can really blow up much beyond that. That's not just somebody local. It's not somebody you know that it is people who are in really desperate situations who are trying to uh, go beyond their friends and neighbors who are trying to go viral, who are trying to cope with million dollar medical bills or having lost their house without insurance or, or something along those sort of lines. And that's when you start to see a lot of the really negative effects of crowdfunding, like um, huge inequities in terms of who tends to do well. It, it can echo racial aspects, gendered aspects, um, huge loss of privacy, um, a lot of people are going to feel um, very challenged or putting their whole lives out there online for, mm. for folks to see. So I, I think that's the sort of point where, um, you know, that we're going to start to see trouble with this, yeah. uh, this practice. Definitely talk more about each of the factors that you've laid out there. I, I'm really curious about hearing from listeners this hour, too. I mean, how have you made these decisions? Like, what considerations do you have when you're thinking about chipping in for a, a GoFundMe? You can email us at forum at kqed.org. I mean, you can find us on all of our social channels uh, from what was formerly known as Twitter through Instagram to our Discord, or you can give us a call. I'd love to hear some of these stories. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Um, Una Osili, you know, as someone who has both researched this and also, uh, you know, is in the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, I mean, how have you yourself donated to GoFundMes, or how do you approach it versus you know, how you might approach some other kind of charitable giving? Well, a great question. I have given, in fact, just uh, yesterday donated to a colleague's son, um, a funeral for a colleague's son mm -hmm. via GoFundMe. So I personally have donated. I think that uh, it comes down to, like any other charitable decision, uh, the degree to which the donor identifies with the cause or with the person that is uh, affected by the particular issue, and then whether you have the financial resources. We often say that people um, have this strong, innate desire to help others. It's a, it's a part of the human uh, mm -hmm. condition. And people of all different backgrounds, when they see someone in need, there is uh, evidence across cultures, across race, ethnicity, there's that instinct to give. 
so the resources and the means also make a difference. You have to look at your own financial situation and make sure that you are in a position to give. And then I think like any other decision, you also have to do your due diligence. We often tell donors that when you get an appeal, uh, research that particular person on Instagram or Facebook, especially if you don't know them, mm-hmm. make sure it's someone that you feel comfortable donating to uh, based on what information is available in the same way that you would do your due diligence around a charitable organization. The contrast between giving via GoFundMe and perhaps giving through a charitable organization, well-established one, is that there is actually a third-party oversight Mm -hmm. that's provided and regulations around those. So with uh, GoFundMe, I think knowing who you're donating to is important, whether that person is in your network or whether you can look online and find out more and verify that um, you want to actually donate to this person and to this cause. I think there are a lot of very compelling reasons. I just gave uh, an example of one, but uh, every single day, and I think it's also really inspiring to see how people um, reach beyond their own networks to help Mm. others in need. So there's both a positive, but also Mm -hmm. some responsibility and due diligence. Yeah. With a traditional institutional charity, right, there's there's the oversight and there's the overhead, right, which people right. also worry about versus this, which feels like, no, I'm just like putting cash in somebody's pocket who really needs it, right? Yeah. Right. Um, you know, GoFundMe announced last week uh, that since 2010, they'd raised $30 billion. And the other data that we have access to really does affirm the popularity. I mean, this is like... Um, really huge money that's flowing through these platforms globally. Absolutely. Yes, but to put it in perspective, uh, just to give you a sense of how this compares to charitable giving um, in, let's pick a year, 2022, the latest year we have, um, charitable giving in the U.S. reached about $500 billion. So while crowdfunding is tremendous and growing in popularity and actually allows donors to connect in real time with people and causes they care about, charitable giving overall is still uh, quite uh, important in our social and economic life. And some of the dollars that are raised on crowdfunding actually go to nonprofits as well. So there's a person-to-person as well as the person-to-a-charity. Yeah. Um, Tony Cookson, let's talk a little bit about the kind of case study that you have. You're in Boulder, and for those uh, here in Northern California who don't remember, in December of 2021, uh, the Marshall Fire broke out, destroyed more buildings than any other fire in Colorado history, killed a, a couple of people as well. And it was kind of a, the sort of natural disaster that we have experienced here in Northern California. And after the fire, a bunch of crowdfunding campaigns popped up. And your team took a look at the data there. And what did you find? Uh, yeah, we um, we found, well, one, it was actually a pretty significant source of support for recovery for people. So uh, if, uh, if you sort of looked at it in perspective of other sources of support, like direct FEMA grants, uh, GoFundMe raised about $23 million, uh, which... Uh, in comparison to the FEMA grants, only two million were dispensed mm. uh, directly to households. Um, in comparison to uh, sort of private charity, our information was a little bit more limited, but um, it it provided uh, actually much faster uh, money to uh, survivors of the wildfire, um, and uh, it it sort of uh, it wasn't linked to sort of rebuilding 
uh, on the on the spot. So like, you know, if something like a, a wildfire takes your house, um, a segment of people might find it psychologically really difficult to stay mm. in that house. Um, and having the liquidity, uh, whether or not you rebuild on that plot, uh, could actually be pretty valuable. So, mm. um, and then the, the other thing uh, that we found, uh, which echoes some of Jeremy's comments, is that it was pretty unequal in terms of who received it. Uh, it we've, we found that people who had higher income, uh, incomes above 150,000, uh, received about 28% more than people who had low income below 75,000. Uh, and that uh, that amounts to about nine thousand dollars for someone who lost their home. Um, average GoFundMe, if you if you experienced a total loss uh, with the Marshall Fire, was about thirty one thousand wow. um, dollars, which uh, which is a pretty significant chunk of change. Not enough to like overcome the under insurance that people had, mm-hmm. um, but but like enough to sort of speed up the recovery and and get people to file say permits faster. Wow. We're talking about crowdfunding, the ethical issues raised by these campaigns, the good that they're able to do in helping people in different, very difficult situations. We're joined by Tony Cookson, a professor of finance in the Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado Boulder. We're joined by Una Osili, associate dean in the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University. And Jeremy Snyder, professor of health sciences at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. Author of the book, Appealing to the Crowd, the Ethical Political and practical dimensions of donation-based crowdfunding. We would love to hear from you. Have you donated to one of these campaigns? How has it has it gone? Or maybe you've created one. Tell us the story of what it was like on, on the other side of this where you're having to make the case that people should to donate to you. Uh, the email is forum at kqed.org, all the social channels, and the phone number is 866 733 6786. That's 866-733-6786. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the ethics and practical good of crowdfunding, what it says about our society that we fund medical bills through crowdfunding sources sometimes. We're joined by Una Osili, Associate Dean of the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University. Jeremy Snyder, author of Appealing to the Crowd, The Ethical, Political, and Practical Dimensions of Donation-Based Crowdfunding, also professor at Simon Fraser University up in British Columbia. 
Columbia. And Tony Cookson, a professor of finance uh, at the University of Colorado Boulder. Let's bring in our first caller. Let's bring in Marguerite in San Rafael. Welcome. My name is Marguerite Moriarty. Uh, I live in San Rafael, and mm-hmm. I uh, very much support this form of um, uh, giving. Uh, I've donated to, you know, the indigenous in Hawaii after the fire, personal families over there that uh, reached out. Um, yeah. A young boy who was beat up at Terra Linda High School and a uh, project in Marin City called Stop 825 Drake Avenue, and I very much support this. I think people that can donate mm-hmm. should do it. You know, it's yeah. a good it's a good way. Margaret, so, real quick question for you. you. Um, stay, stay with us. Uh, how do you decide who to give to? Like, is it just what happens to come across your feed? Do you search out um, these kinds of opportunities? Is it word of mouth from friends offline? Um, some of it is forwarded to me uh, by a friend, but you know, when the fires happened in Hawaii, how mm-hmm. could you not yeah. reach out to those people? Here we are. Um, and then in the Marin City issue, um, there's just such a, a racial justice issue mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. Um, that, um, you know, and in Lily White Marin, I just really think it's important for um, people that can. Donate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just yeah. think it's a really good thing. And thank you for bringing this out so that, um, yeah, like the little boy, he was in high school at Terra Linda. I mean, he got beat up badly. His mm. family, then another um, family in um, Marin, mm-hmm. the mother was caring for her son, mm-hmm. you know, through the disability program. And then because he was hospitalized, she could no longer mm. get any uh, payment, you know, I mean, yeah. and Oof. I know there's a lot of people that don't believe that people yeah. should get paid. But, you know, that's yeah. that's our system. And it's a compassionate system, yeah. but it's not an easy one for poor people to navigate. Yeah. Let me tell you. I mean, I'm not poor, but. Yeah. I'm Marguerite, thank you. Um, so thank you for putting uh, this on. Yeah. Appreciate that. I, you know, Una, uh, I wanted to ask you about what we know about, I I guess I want to just call it, I'll leave it a little bit open-ended, the intersection of kind of race and this kind of GoFundMe work? Very good question. We have spent a lot of time looking at the profile of a typical charitable crowdfunding donor compared to just a general Mm -hmm. uh, charitable donation or donor. And what we find is that crowdfunding donors tend to be younger They tend to be more diverse, racially, ethnically diverse. Um, Women are very active on crowdfunding platforms. um, And we also find one interesting difference. Crowdfunding donors tend to be more drawn to racial and social justice causes Mm. and are less religious in orientation. That means they don't attend services as frequently, also less likely to be married. When we look at the typical charitable donor, they tend to be older, Um, And they also tend to be more likely to attend services frequently 
and more settled, married, uh, most likely in a community. So one way to look at this uh, set of profiles is that the charitable crowdfunding arena gives a, a big space, a big tent, sort of expands the notion of how people give. And for nonprofit organizations who want to expand their traditional donor base, perhaps to reach especially younger folks who are active on social media, uh, crowdfunding is a great uh, front door to bring some of those mm. folks in because they're already very active on these platforms, Instagram um, and so forth. Um, yeah. And yeah. yes. Let's bring in another caller. Let's go to uh, Lisa in San Carlos. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, thank you. Um, I, yeah, I live in San Carlos, and a couple years ago, there were two super tragic events that happened very close in, in time to each other. One was a single mom who was involved in a decap, uh, well, involved in a domestic violence situation where she was actually decapitated oh, by God. her uh, partner. Um, in front of her children were in the apartment window mm. above oh. and sort of witnessed this horrible thing. The other was um, a, f- a family of four, twin girls and their, their parents, who were involved in a car wreck just locally, mm-hmm. and the parents were killed in- instantly, and the mm. children survived. And both of these incidents were, of course, put on next door and, you know, talked about in the community, and there were also fund GoFundMe situations mm-hmm. for both of these. And what was really, I watched both you know, go fund me mm-hmm. to see what was happening. I contributed to both. But the woman who was a single mom, who was working class mm-hmm. mom, um, her, she, she, her father p- posted the GoFundMe, and they probably raised $50,000 mm-hmm. for those kids. The other family raised $500,000. And um, the, the other family was from a more affluent background, Mm -hmm. not wealthy, but more affluent, big um, community in terms of the parents' workplaces and that kind of thing. And it was just really stark to me that both of those families experienced terrible tragedies. Both of those children are coming out, or both of those, Mm -hmm. the, the four children are coming out of a terrible situation, having to navigate life without their parents. Um, and it just, I don't know, it, ta- it, ta- it spoke yeah. to me about the inequity situation. You know, right. what is... Right. Can this really be a compensatory mechanism when it really seems like it's actually reproducing the social inequalities that existed before yeah. these yeah. platforms? Yeah. Yeah. Lisa, what a what a, um, a fascinating point. And let's take that one um, over to Jeremy. I, I think th- it's almost like a, like a, like a perfect test scenario, right? One, two, not similar, but two tragic circumstances in the same place. And you see this like massive disparity in outcome. Yeah, it's, and unfortunately, it's a very, very common kind of scenario where, um, and even by the standards of crowdfunding, those those campaigns did extremely well, um, is one thing to point out. What you'll see is when you look at crowdfunding campaigns for medical needs, um, and some of these other needs as a whole, you know, the the numbers differ, but somewhere in the range of 40% during COVID-19 got nothing at all. So that's much more the standard experiences of somebody um, who uh, who's getting nothing or, or only a, a few bucks. But, you know, I, um, Dr. Asile makes a really important point that in terms of the donors, it's really expanding 
younger and more racially diverse uh, people who are contributing to these campaigns. But when you look at on the other side, there are a lot of factors, um, you know, black and Latino people, um, people with poor uh, sort of social networks, people with lower educational attainment, they tend to do a lot less well. So we're, we're seeing sort of a reproduction of a lot of these inequities in terms of the winners and losers. And then on top of that, who can tell a more sympathetic story, who seems to be more deserving, uh, and who can connect with uh, reporters and, and the public in a kind of way. Those are the people who tend to win this kind of a popularity contest. Yeah. yeah. And I think that there that is one of the things that generates for me uh, some of my discomfort with seeing the way that GoFundMe is being used to patch over the holes of a society that's really struggling, because it's trying to turn all of these tragedies people are forced to turn them into like compelling content which then brings in all the dynamics of online content virality the need for compelling visuals relatability uh you know who is considered you know classically good looking and and the outcomes also turn out to be you know this kind of rock star economics as well where some people get a lot and many many people get get nothing or or almost nothing um, how do you see this, uh, Jeremy? We have a lot of listeners who are writing in saying basically, well, I'll just read you one. Robert writes, in normal countries around the world, citizens get help through guaranteed national health care system. In contrast, because of our cruel, dysfunctional system, people beg to avoid financial ruin. Rather than focus on tips, how to publicly beg, let's discuss how we achieve Medicare for all. Different show, Robert, but I take your point that like, I do think when you see... 430,000 people applying for help via uh, GoFundMe to get medical procedures. It does feel like a sign of the apocalypse, Jeremy. Yeah, and, um, you know, maybe I'm in one of those normal countries, I guess. I'm a, I grew up in the U.S., but I've been living in, um, in a Canadian system for the last uh, decade or so. And uh, yeah, it's, it certainly does show those massive gaps in the social uh, support system where where people are having to beg for basic cancer treatment, that sort of thing. And I, I think that we should see it as sort of a, uh, a mark of distress that people are having to, to do this. But I will add, you know, in, here in Canada, we do have a you know strong public health insurance, but you still see plenty of health-related crowdfunding campaigns for getting access, you know, traveling to a medical center, paying for parking, uh, mm -hmm. time off work, you know, these sort of things. So. Mm -hmm. Um, even even in countries that I think are doing a much better job of um, taking care of their citizens, you're going to see a lot of these. You know, there is definitely a place for crowdfunding. There's definitely um, going to be people falling through the cracks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, let's bring in Nick in El Cerrito. Welcome, Nick. Yeah, hi. Um, I so I had a couple experiences where I donated to folks. One was a, a healthcare issue, and one was a housing, a, a flood damage. Um, and in both instances, these folks posted photos within a month of going on pretty lavish vacations. You know, mm -hmm. all the while I'm watching my budget. My kids aren't going to Disneyland or wherever. So mm -hmm. um, I like to think I gift unconditionally, but I've definitely thought a little bit more about the calculus before gifting. Mm -hmm. um, after those two instances. Yeah. Hey, Nick, um, appreciate that perspective. And, you know, um, Una Osili, this kind of goes to a, a question of, you know, how can people trust 
what's happening, right? I mean, because we, un unlike, you know, giving through um, a social, a community that you're already part of, like in a church or, um, you know, just someone you know on your block or something, there is this kind of remove of, of social trust. So what's the right way to approach that? Well, the caller raised a very good point. I actually started paying attention to this during Hurricane Harvey in 2017, where um, that was the first time I would say that we saw significant dollars being raised around uh, crowdfunding. One example, the football player J.J. Watt raised $40 million mm. in just about a month uh, around that disaster. So I think that what it uh, brings out is some of the themes that we've been discussing. When you give to a stranger, especially, that does involve trust, that involves confidence that that individual will use those resources in the manner that they say they're going to. As a donor, um, I'd say that, uh, that what you can do is, first of all, do your homework around that particular cause or that person and make sure that you're comfortable. And then if there is a fraudulent issue uh, associated with the campaign or that individual where those dollars are not being used for that purpose, GoFundMe and some of the other crowdfunding platforms are increasingly uh, doing some monitoring around fraud. So outright fraud is something that uh, the platforms have started to pay attention to. As the individual donor, I would say your best um, safeguard is to really do your research and often uh, many of the crowdfunding platforms and campaigns will send updates, sometimes in real time, to their donors. We saw that during Hurricane Harvey, where if it was a pet that needed assistance or a house that was being rebuilt, they would post uh, afterwards what they had done with those resources. So I think that uh, there's a level of uh, accountability that comes with a campaign and um, the same sort of due diligence that uh, is expected for any financial transaction, I would say potential donors should do their homework so they don't avoid giving to a person or a cause that they don't necessarily align with. Yeah. Um, we have another listener who wrote in to say, I tend to give to campaigns that a friend tells me about. I like to know that there's a personal connection to the person who needs help. That's it for the holidays our family chooses, a Donors Choose Classroom. That's another platform out there for those who don't know. Uh, donors Choose Classroom to support. It's a site that allows you to pay for classroom supplies. It's crazy that teachers in this country have to buy their own scissors, glue, pencils, and books. Um, Tony Cookson, it makes sense to me that people would look to their social networks. That is the way that it has, has long gone. Um, but in your in your own research into the fire, you have obviously everyone has multiple overlapping social networks. Did you go to, say, your university to look for people that you might donate to or did you go somewhere else? Uh, so for my my own giving, I actually went to my gym um, five, five people at my gym lost, uh, lost their homes. Mm. Uh, and I, I actually did so quite deliberately because, you know, I, all of these points about like sort of trusting people in your network and feeling more comfortable, uh, with a donation, uh, to someone who's a friend or a friend of friend. Um, these are all very natural aspects of, of, uh, of what, uh, where, where you would think to sort of support people like you trust that the that their loss is real um i mean i think when we were looking into this we also sort of on the flip side felt like this was actually part of the disparity mm -hmm. because like people who are sort of be beneficiaries of these campaigns who are sort of better off well they're also 
people who know people who are better off, who are in a better position to give. Um, and so like in sort of my thinking, I was thinking, well, who do, where are my friends who are from a more diverse background of, of people who, uh, who could come from sort of different professions. So going to the university just didn't seem like the place for me to sort of think about that. So like, so I think uh, at least from that standpoint, like that's that's kind of how we were thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it does seem like you know we we did see that like you know it, it was more about like uh, the number of donations uh, and uh, not so much about like the size of the donation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also saw that it wasn't really about how much it was shared on social media. Um, uh-huh. In in our case study, actually, uh, higher income people had their campaigns shared less on social media. That might reflect something about Boulder in that if you went out onto, say, Facebook, a lot of people were looking for ways to give sort of beyond their friends of friends because they knew that everyone had experienced such a a big disaster where, like, they weren't going to be able to uh, sort of connect the dots. Um, we also have some folks who are sharing, you know, their own personal kind of mathematics around some of these things or emotional mathematics. Uh, Milzaho over on the Discord writes, I've donated to personal friends, medical GoFundMes, wildlife relief and mass shooting uh, community affected in Half Moon Bay. I would not contribute to a stranger's plea for rent, or bills to be paid or an elective surgery for aesthetics. Having been raised on and off government assistance, I saw the struggle each parent had with physical and mental disabilities, each overcoming financial hardship with dignity and personal responsibility. We're talking about crowdfunding, the way that it works in practice, uh, and the ethical issues that's raised by these campaigns. We're joined by Tony Cookson, professor of finance at Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado Boulder, also co-authored a recent study about how GoFundMe was used following a, a wildfire. Joined by Jeremy Snyder, professor of health sciences at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, author of the book Appealing to the Crowd, the Ethical, Political, and Practical Dimensions of Donation-Based Crowdfunding. And we're joined by Una O'Seely, who is associate dean of the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana. I'd love to hear from people who've set up um, crowdfunding for themselves or for, for other people and what that experience was like to have to share you know, a, a personal tragedy or to help a friend share something like that. You can email forum at kqed.org or you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the GoFundMe era that we're living in as we try and patch over a torn social safety net here in the United States and the ethical issues that are raised by these platforms. Joined by Una Osili, Associate Dean of the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana, Jeremy Snyder, author of the book Appealing to the Crowd, The Ethical, Political, and Practical Dimensions of Donation-Based Crowdfunding, and Tony Cookson, Professor of Finance at the University of Colorado Boulder. We've got a couple of people who've written in about uh, generating um, GoFundMes. Pam writes, I've started several GoFundMes for people I know, most notably for a friend of mine who is disabled. The only reason we had to have that was because there was such a long wait for my friend to get the services they needed that they were, in fact, eligible for and did eventually get. I'm glad I was able to help my friend, but I find it really depressing to think what happens to all the people who don't have friends with a network of other friends who can donate. If we had a functioning social welfare state, even one that does what it's legislated to do, this wouldn't have been needed. Another um, listener writes in to say, Donnie, I recently had a GoFundMe page set up for my benefit due to the struggle I've been having with addiction and health. It has been a trade-off between giving up my shame and the page being of help to me. One issue I have run into ethically is that my name is erroneously set up as the organizer when it has been set up by a friend, which makes it look like I'm asking for money uh, on my own. Um, Let's um, go to caller Richard, who also has set up uh, GoFundMe. Welcome, Richard. Uh, thank you. Uh, you know, I, I really appreciate the program and uh, calling attention to this opportunity for people to help each other. Uh, as someone else said, you know, we don't have a functioning social network in this country. And there are many instances. Well, let me get to two, uh, two drives that I organized over the past four years. Uh, our son was severely uh, injured in a motorcycle accident with multiple pelvic fractures. And, uh, you know, his insurance was very limited. Hmm. And we launched that drive and, uh, and helped him substantially because he couldn't work for quite a long time. Hmm. And it covered his living expenses. Uh, and then more recently, just yesterday, I launched, um, I launched a uh, drive on behalf of a woman who is 58 years old, mm. who, after heart surgery, uh, was left paralyzed from the waist down. Mm. And she, her primary caregiver is her 75-year-old mother. And they were at really severe straits because, uh, well, I yeah. mean, it speaks right. for itself. She could not yeah. go back to work. Yeah. And people, people instantly started, you know, they know, they know yeah. these people, and they started responding immediately. Yeah. You know, Richard, uh, appreciate you uh, bringing some of the, the real life of these GoFundMes into the, into the program this morning. It's, um, yeah, I find it just heartbreaking. <laughs> um, uh, let's go to Paul in San Jose. Welcome, Paul. Oh, hi, how are you? Thanks for taking my call. It's a very simple question that always baffles me. How can you do due diligence on mm-hmm. someone trying to get money for a GoFundMe? Uh, mm-hmm. How can you vet them out? I mean, not everyone out there asking for money is honest. Yeah, yeah. Paul, it's a good question. Um, Una, let's, let's go to you on this. 
Yes, it's a very good question. I will say uh, one quick thing you can do, and it's quite easy to do, is, is look on uh, the Facebook account and make sure that uh, the person is um, legitimate uh, first in terms of the, the needs that they're um, assessing. And if you have a network, you can also see who their friends are, are those people that you know or perhaps have a connection to. And um, the good news is you can do a quick search on the Internet to see if there are other maybe news stories that can um, also align with what's being shared uh, during the campaign. This is especially true in disasters because we noted that a lot of the folks that were raising money around Hurricane Harvey or even one example during COVID-19, there were news stories about those families or about those uh, particular situations. So a way for the donor, potential donor, to verify that that community or that individual was involved in a campaign and trying to raise money for something, especially an accident, a disaster. Now, this is not always easy to do, but the good news is today with quite uh, straightforward to do your own search, and especially if you're going to commit large uh, sums of money. Mm -hmm. I should note that the average crowdfunding donor is giving about $200. Um, in contrast, the average charitable donor is giving about $2,000 mm -hmm. in, a, in a year. So these are different margins. But I think anytime mm -hmm. someone wants to make a donation, it is a financial transaction as well, mm -hmm. as well as uh, an emotional one. So yeah. uh, spend some time just getting to know the cause, the person that you're supporting on, on social media or using a traditional media to verify if possible. Jeremy, I know in your book you dedicate some time to trying to think through and, and research the kind of issues around both. I guess there's kind of two levels of it, right? There's really just fraud, like someone making it up. But then there's maybe something that, you know, a, a caller earlier referenced, which is maybe the people didn't really need it. Yeah, and this is one of my big reservations about crowdfunding is that, you know, I, I think that's sound advice that we're getting, um, that you you can check people out, you can check out their social media profiles and, and that sort of thing. But my concern with that is that, um, you know, it just turns us all into investigators. Uh, it puts pressure on the recipient to have a clean profile. Uh, it means that they're Maybe if there's somebody like me who doesn't really want to have a Facebook uh, profile, there's pressure on them to have one and to be very, very open about their lives and to publicly demonstrate that they're a, a legitimate cause. And so, um, you know, you, you do see that pressure, but I think a lot of times if, um, if it's somebody you don't know, and so that verification is already there, that's somebody you're already part of their lives, a lot of times it can be a lot simpler to support a well-run charity, a local organization. We had a caller earlier saying they wanted to help out uh, indigenous Hawaiians, for example, after the fire there. Uh, certainly crowdfunding is one way that you can do that. And you can check out each person's life and try, you know, make sure they're posting up uh, pictures of their destroyed house and, and destroyed furniture and that sort of thing. But then there are also local indigenous charities there that you can help directly that have been there for years, that know the community, that are gonna be there next week. And I would tend to encourage people to do that instead. Hmm. Um, and, and in that gray area, too, it means that, um, you know, we do have a lot of that gray area of fraud where um, you say you're going to do something and your your needs actually change and, and people might get upset about that. But again, the flip side is that we're giving the donors immense control over people's medical care, hmm. how they live their lives and all of that.
Um, you know, as we talk about this, it occurs to me, are these kinds of fundraisers or this kind of shift in the, the, the breadth of kind of fundraising for charities that people can do, is it taking away from traditional charities? Or as you mentioned earlier, is it drawing on a different donor base? And so not actually to kind of additive to traditional um, charitable giving. So far, what we see is that it's not displacing traditional charitable giving because it's drawing in a new type of donor and many people are giving to crowdfunding on top of their charitable donations. However, I do agree with my colleagues here that um, ultimately, if you want to make a difference in a community, if you want to help solve a problem, working with an established charity that has a track record where you can verify um, that your donations are used in the way that you want and where that organization is accountable to the donor and to uh, our state and, and local governments as well is ultimately the best way to make a difference. Um, given all the challenges that we face, a, a charitable organization has a long standing record of uh, working in a community and can deliver. And increasingly what people get, I should note the difference is often that you can connect with a person in real time. Mm -hmm. It's easy to give. In other words, hit a button. Um, and it's also easy to set up a campaign. So what we're also bringing up is that traditional charities have an opportunity also to lower the barriers to giving, to mm -hmm. make it, you know, the frictionless experience, to make it easier that, uh, and also to provide that real-time feedback so that a potential donor knows this is how I'm making a difference. I think crowdfunding provides that. Yeah. Let's bring in another caller, uh, Michelle in Oakland. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to chime in because I've run a few GoFundMes for uh, specifically for immigrants who are seeking asylum here in the Bay Area. And many of these folks do not have the support systems, um, the, the networks, the contacts uh, for the help. So I think that GoFundMes can really help people like that who are definitely deserving but may just be trying to get by and you may not even speak the language enough to plug into kind of our, our, our normal system. So they've been very successful and help. I have one young man who lived with me for a few years and he's gotten his asylum and he's now bringing his family from Nicaragua over here and we're helping him with the GoFundMe to get set up in a new apartment. Have you got any tips for people who are running this kind of operation? Was it just kind of like regular updates, compelling story, <laughs> driving it into your social network? Or were there were there other things? Um, I think just plugging into my network is great, has been helpful. But I also think several people have done what GoFundMe recommends, which is leverage the posting to expand and beyond my network, for example, to their own personal networks, and it kind of grows exponentially from there. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Michelle. You know, one of our listeners um, hates that particular part of it. Liz writes in to say, I have a standard $20 donation when friends uh, need help. What I don't like about GoFundMe is when the organizer wants me to post on Facebook to get additional funding. How about just a simple thanks? Um, the We're talking about crowdfunding and the ethical issues raised by these campaigns, whether they're helping the people who are most in need. We're joined by Una Osili, who's Associate Dean of the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University. We're joined by Tony Cookson, a professor of finance uh, at the Lead School of Business at the University of Colorado Boulder. 
recently co-authored a study about GoFundMe campaigns following a wildfire you can check out. Also joined by Jeremy Snyder, author of Appealing to the Crowd, the Ethical, Political, and Practical Dimensions of Donation-Based Crowdfunding, a professor in health sciences at Simon Fraser University up in British Columbia. We're going to get to a few more of your comments and calls, but this is also a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. Uh, go fund us, I suppose, for more information about how to support KQED. Go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. So we have um, one thing we haven't talked about so far today, and maybe I will um, come to you on this, Una, is there's it's kind of a field in which misinformation or sort of bad information because it's kind of can be quite viral um is part of the landscape here right like people who are raising money for um uh, uh, to support untrue things um how much of the landscape do you see uh is that kind of fundraising well, it's an interesting question because I think one of the other participants raised the point that crowdfunding has been with us for a while. What has changed is the scale, the speed, and the scope. So within minutes, millions can be raised. Um, and yes, there is uh, fraud uh, that takes place. But what we've seen so far is that that's a relatively small percentage of the campaigns that are just outright fraudulent. What is more common, though, is sometimes uh a campaign is raised that may not actually be what is needed uh, for that particular crisis or disaster. Mm -hmm. So I think that fraud is certainly a part of uh, the landscape. But uh, the bigger issue, I think, is this one that has been raised already, the transparency and accountability mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. uh, when you give to a crowdfunding campaign, you don't have the same safeguards and protections that you would when you give to a, a charitable organization. And while I certainly applaud the uh, generosity of the donors that give and the ones that set up the campaigns. I think as we seek to solve problems, especially at scale, it's also important to think about uh, how we use all the tools that we have. Um, there are many ways to express generosity and certainly giving to a nonprofit working on that issue, whether it's homelessness, domestic violence, immigrants, um, those are all very valuable. What I'm celebrating is also that uh, we have so many new tools available for mm -hmm. people to help their neighbors and in their community. But I think we should not lose sight of uh, solving problems also involves mm -hmm. bringing uh, resources at scale. And often that means supporting mm -hmm. a charitable organization. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in uh, Nir Ali in Santa Clara. Welcome. Hi, Alexis. Thank you so much for having uh, this forum. Um, I guess what my the reason I compelled me to call in was just thinking that you know when I'm donating or when I'm giving to anybody, um, I don't want to impose my values onto them and expect them to uphold what my view of their suffering should look like. Right? Like there was a there was a caller earlier who said like oh they saw they donated and they saw somebody post or vacation photos and it's like well I'm not trying to I don't want the people that I donate to to feel like they have to prove that they have to continue to suffer just to be worthy. Um, so I guess for me, like the thing about donating is, uh, you know, it, it's our choices, right? It's our own. We have our own choice to do that. But for me, like what I try to do is when I give, I don't have expectations of something in return. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, because it's like, you know, I don't need other people to prove to me that they're using my donation according to my set of values or principles or yeah. morals or whatever. Yeah, yeah. no, that makes sense. Yeah. And it, and That's so, my, my thing. Yeah. Nirali, thank you so much. You know, we had uh, Martina also writes in to say, I used to worry much more about where the money actually goes, but my husband's attitude toward giving shifted mine over the years. He gives everyone money or food when asked, doesn't ask questions, just offers what he can. Um, Tony Cookson, um, what, what do you see in these kind of differing attitudes about sort of wanting to know um, where that the money's being used for the exact purpose that it was stated or just sort of trying to let go of that particular uh, kind of control? Yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting tension. I mean, it probably varies a lot by who you are as a donor. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of in our our experience uh, looking at the Marshall Fire, uh, we, we focused most of our analysis on the individual beneficiaries where you knew you were giving to a family who had had lost something. It was actually really easy to verify uh, who who lost what because maps of hmm. where the fire was. Uh, we were able to match 87% of these to like a name and address. So hmm. like like the verifiability was actually pretty high. Um in our in our context, um, I, I think one of the things that's nice in like a disaster context is that you don't necessarily know what someone what's going to serve someone mm. going forward. Right, rebuilding versus moving, and actually most of the resources that exist right now, including your formal insurance, involve a lot of like uh, involve rebuilding, mm-hmm. um, and so like sometimes that that sort of moving away is yeah. facilitated better so yeah. um so we think like at least thinking about the liquidity aspect seems like a really important part too. yeah last listener comment uh writes in to say my compassionate heart has led me to contribute to gofundme campaigns on several occasions each year among those whom i've been delighted to help the owner of a flower shop in san francisco that burned the family whose teenage son a star soccer player was badly injured in a surfing accident and the gentleman whose van was stolen in san francisco with all his work supplies in it i love that people do want to help each other we've been talking about crowdfunding how it works and the ethical issues raised by it been joined by tony cookson professor of finance at lead school of business at the university of colorado boulder Jeremy Snyder, professor in health sciences at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia and author of Appealing to the Crowd, a book on these issues. Also been joined by Una O'Seely, associate dean in the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana. Thank you so much to all of our guests, callers, and commenters. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.